Hey everyone, Craig Rowe here. For some, real success is not defined by the money you make, but by the life you actually lead. So, this podcast explores the common human experience, those stories and journeys that many take on their pursuit of happiness and fulfillment. Some use their passion to overcome adversity, while others may use it to educate the world about their cause. And for those among us game enough, you may even turn your passion into a business. Each week, I sit and chat with those who have taken their interest beyond the realm of hobby and into the realm of cause or obsession. These positive, highly motivated and inspirational entities I like to call people with a passion. G'day everyone, it's Craig from People With A Passion and I'm with Joel Stephen Fleming of 13th Street Films and we're going to be talking about video production and producing directing. How yeah, are you, mate? Great. Thanks for having me, mate. Uh, this is a passion for you. It's something you said you wanted to do uh, for a very long time as a, as a child. Do you want to talk about where you first thought, I want to do producing and directing? Yeah, so... Um, I've had this question a number of times now. We've been starting to get the ball rolling and get a bit known in the local community. It's actually quite a silly thing. I first got interested in like filmmaking from watching Jackass when I was a kid mm -hmm. and just the stupid stunts they were doing. I wanted to do that with all my mates. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, let's get like a handy cam and run around pranking people and freaking out old ladies in Sandgate where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the first thing I ever did as far as camera work and editing and telling people what to do which is basically what directing is yeah and uh yeah i just it became an obsession i used to make stuff with my mates for no money that was terrible with no training and i didn't really know I, what i was doing and i self-taught a lot of the stuff yes and that you know years and years down the line end up going to uni properly learning the skill and then now being able to do it professionally yeah so what did you study at university what was the course that you did so it's at uh, Griffith Uni. They have an actual film school separate, yes. part of the whole arts college in South Bank. So mm -hmm. you're doing a film degree. So when did you actually decide to go to uni? At what stage in, in your life? Did you do it straight out of school or did you do it a little bit after or did you try some other things? No, so I did want to do it straight after high school and got discouraged by, you know, kind of the whole thing of you won't make any money in this, what is, where is it going to lead? from family and friends and other people sure and kind of went in a different direction actually when i was a kid i was doing a sports course at tafe straight out of okay. school and doing a lot of coaching and then that kind of like didn't really lead anywhere to financial you know like a proper full-time job i ended up going to europe mid-20s living in the netherlands for a few years yes the whole time i was still doing film for fun with my mates sure when i got there i was working with a small group of expats and i started doing commercials for companies that over there yeah sure um who wanted stuff in english and you know someone who knew what they were doing and then from that it really spurred me to like oh i can i could actually make money out of this and i could do this as a job and i kept writing and then when i as soon as i got back to australia which i planned to go straight to uni uh, i had to do like one of those adult tests to prove you're not stupid you know because yes. my op was so bad when i was a kid i didn't yeah, care sure, about school sure. at all so I'd you went through that a, so you went in as a mature age <laughs> mature age had to do that test and they're like all right you're in um, yeah, and then I'm around all these 18-year-olds trying to not freak them out that I'm like an so, old man, even though I'm 29 and I look 22. Okay. <laughs> um, so you came back to Australia, you studied at Griffith University. What was the course you actually did at Griffith? So it's a Bachelor of Screen Media. So it's basically they have a film school. They're in the Arts College in South Bank and 
you can learn, you know, every di different discipline there. So if you wanted to do lighting, you could focus on that. If you want to be a director, you do that. If you want to do sound. So you learn all the basics of everything and then you start specializing as the course goes on. Did you, what was your specialization then as the course went on? So I was really interested in writing, directing, because I like, I love coming up with a new idea mm -hmm. and I have the, you know, the personality to lead a group of people. I've always been very outspoken and strong. And I think a little bit of that comes from also being like the oldest in the family. It's a weird thing. You look at um, like jobs that, with leadership, a lot of people are the oldest in their family. So yeah. it's the first time you're ever directing or, you know, managing is getting your little brothers and sisters to in the car on time or something like that. Uh, so you had some people uh, around you saying this isn't um, necessarily a good idea. Mm -hmm. How did you mentally come up with the idea that, no, this is, this is for me? What made you or motivated you to not necessarily ignore those voices, but obviously you would have contemplated what they had to say, but you've gone in the opposite direction, just said, you know what, this is what I want to do. And, and how do you get to that point? So I think the desire to do something that you believe is exceptional, not average, you know, I have a kind of a weird fear of living a normal or average existence. I find the word normal scary. Like if someone was like, you're normal, I'd be like, that's an insult. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So I always wanted to do something, uh, you know, memorable or of significance with my life. And, and this is just the thing that felt right whenever I did it all the way back from being 13, mucking around with a camera in the backyard to, you know, directing 30 crew and 20 actors like I did a week ago. It's that same feeling and it's just in hands and it's like addictive every time you did it you want to do it again and if you talk to a lot of artists with you know their passion you'll get the same result yeah so talk a little bit about your writing so directing is one thing writing for me is another mm -hmm. so you chose that path of writing writer director when you write do you think about does it does it flow or you have an end game how does it work from a process point of view for the story structure yes. yeah so usually i have a I get obsessed with a concept, like an idea or a theme, and it starts there. And often writers will tell you this is like, uh, don't write down an idea when you, you first have it. Yeah. See if it comes back. Because the ones that come back and keep coming and gnawing at you, they're the ones you have to write. Okay. So if you have five ideas over you know the first three months of the year and you're like, oh, I'm going to start writing a new script you know, in June or something. The one that you can't get out of your head, that's the one you should write. Okay. So I do the same thing. I don't write it down. If it's in my head, swirling around there while I'm working on one thing and the new idea is coming, then I know that's the one. And then as far as writing it, it depends. If I want to make it myself, then I write it to be producible. So in the Australian small industry, that means affordable, basically, yes. you know, yes. keep it simple, uh, limit your maybe locations, maybe how many characters you have. Definitely like the style of the thing. You don't want explosions and helicopters. Mm -hmm. You want the story yeah. to be able to be told well Yes. in a way you can make it. So if I'm writing something that we're going to produce at 13th Street, we're going to have a low budget. We're going to be trying to do it as efficiently as possible. Yeah. So I'll write to that structure. Whereas if I was writing something on spec, as they say, so just say you got hired to write a Marvel movie, you can write whatever you want because the money's no object. Sure. And you doing some commercial work too that helps pay the bills. Interestingly, at university, you uh, entered a competition for some funding for something you'd written. And mm -hmm. then, then once you received the funding, you had to produce that. Um, do you want to talk to, to that? And that was a bit of a reality check for those people that were saying, don't do this. It, 
it might not be an industry for you. Yeah, I, I think uh, that was kind of the first little ticks box for me for self-belief as well, that I, I'm i not like just an arrogant idiot that thinks I'm good at the thing. I think I showed that I have merit in this thing and I have potential. And yeah, you get to show your friends and your family and say, look, this is a little step. This shows something. So it was a grant from Canon Cameras to make a film. And the way you applied was a bit of detail about yourself and giving your script. And they picked two scripts out of, you know, thousands in Australia mm. to get funded. And then we made the film and then we took it to film festivals and that kind of journey. Yeah. So uh, you said that was when some of the family members saw the end product too and said, actually, no, you know what? Maybe you are right for this. It was still a maybe though. But, yeah, <laughs> a maybe, a you ma- are. maybe this is you. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> everyone's built differently. We all have different things. You indicated that you know, the older members of the family, grandparents, things like that, almost came out and said, or did come out and say, you're not supposed to enjoy your work. You're just meant to go to work and come home. And, and yeah, yeah. it's not about enjoyment. Why are you <laughs> trying this? It's, you know, you just work and you do a job and that's it. So culture, obviously, uh, uh, generations change over time mm-hmm. and perceptions change. And uh, obviously, that's not where a lot of people are at these days. So what gives you the confidence to wake up every morning pursuing something that is as hard as I imagine directing and producing actually is and writing? Yeah, so it's interesting because I'd say one of the biggest uh, kind of realists in my life would be my dad. But at the same time, he'd be like, that's crazy, you're not going to make money in it at the start. But he's the kind of person who took the same kind of risks in his industry. So he had a stable job, made his own small business, risked everything and made it a success. So in a way, even though he doubted, you know, my journey at the start, I'm doing almost the same thing, but just in my chosen passion, whereas he took a little bit of a safer route. He still did the same thing, took a risk, you know, put his knowledge and passion into it and it paid off. So it's kind of ironic in that way. So do you see him as an inspiration for you in that regard too, knowing he actually successfully mm. built a business and you see that it's, like you say, it translates to what you're doing, not the same industry, but basically saying, well, you could look at him and almost flip that to him and say, well, you actually did this. Mm, definitely. He's, uh, his work ethic is unquestionable and that's something that I think I really admire and that I want to put into my passion, which is filmmaking. Yeah, That's probably the biggest thing. So it's that work ethic. And there's a kind of inbuilt confidence that some would say arrogance in our family that uh, can really help you push through those challenges and the adversity you face, which in filmmaking, you'll hear no a lot. Um, You know, you make a a short film, say, take it to festivals. You might get in 10% of the ones you enter. So you're getting a lot of no's. It's the same as being an actor, you know, going to 100 auditions, you get book one role. You have to be resilient. You have to push through that. And I think that that like self-belief comes from our, our parents raising us like really confidently and believing in ourselves. Yeah, I, I have an approach around no, is I ask someone if they want to do something. If they say no, I just say, well, I'm no worse off. So there's actually a Dutch saying about that. And yeah. I always tell people that when they're like scared to ask the question we need to ask. I'm talking to a colleague from work and it's their job. Oh, we need this location. Go talk to them. And they go, oh, and they're all nervous and awkward about it. They're all younger than me. Yes. So that kind of thing, they get anxiety. And there's mm. this Dutch phrase that just says simply, you have a no now. That's what it translates That's to. It. So you have a no if you don't ask. The worst thing you're going to have is the same thing if you ask, right? Yeah. So it's the exact same kind of thing. So some people would say that 
when you ask a question, there are three things that, you know, three possibilities. Yes, no, maybe, and maybe is the worst of those three. Mm, yeah, because you don't know what you got. Exactly. <laughs> so, so no is not necessarily no forever. And interestingly, the approach with, with what I'm doing here is I've hit up some really interesting people and bigger names, influencers mm-hmm. more or less. Now, I have said to some individuals, I've pursued those people. And they're going, you'll never get them. And it's like, well, I'm going to ask the question because it's not for me to decide at the end of the day, if I put it to them and that's something they want to be involved in, they'll say yes. And I'm a believer that eventually one or two will say yes. Mm, great. And once they do, then then other people will see value in what I'm doing. So Exactly. And that can hope. Yeah, if you get one, it can open the door for the yeah. next you know, the network. It, it, it is, it, it, and it's it's just a case of being prepared to take a heap of no's till you get that yes. And mm-hmm. that resilience in, in any creative industry, music industry, film industry, even art, like artists, mm. you know, who, you know, any sort of, any environment where you're, you're having to get the yes, like authors, then that's the, the thing you've got to be prepared for is all those no's. But it's also jobs as well today yeah. people just going for oh, it's a, hard a to job. even get a yeah a job down the shop or whatever when you're a teenager or you know like it's crazy and it can be dejecting for those who are taking the nose but they're only one question away from a yes and that's the other approach to it so look you're talking earlier off camera about process and mm-hmm. how you're constantly working you talk about your dad's work ethic and you try and apply those same principles to what you're doing, that you're constantly working on new projects. Do you want to talk about like the, the three sort of things in that process that are always ongoing for you? Yeah, so basically in film you have pre-production, production and post-production. So basically pre-production is your planning, you're preparing to do the shoot. The production is shooting the film, the days you're on set, and post is editing, which incorporates you know, in-depth things like sound, visual effects, um, color grading, and then the actual editing of the video clips is predates all of that stuff that comes right at the end. So it's uh, really, it can be a long drawn out process. And as a independent production company, we want to always have something, some content online or to show releasing whatever like that. So we always have a, a product that we're promoting and advertising. We have something we're working on at that time and we have one in development as they say so something we're writing and honing that'll then become the next thing that goes into pre-production yeah sure so some of the stuff that you've done is up on uh facebook and youtube Mm -hmm. so i'll actually link that stuff into the description of this video so that people can go and actually have a look at the work that you're doing and you've picked a little bit of a genre on that stuff obviously you're doing you said you've done corporate commercial work both in europe when you hadn't done your degree but also now it's part of um 13th street films Mm -hmm. that you people can actually get you to produce corporate stuff for them or ads and things of that yeah, nature. Yeah, we've done small business. We've done big national television commercials. So yeah. any scale we can do, yeah. Yeah. So speak to the genre that you've chosen a little bit because you're writing a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a tough genre myself. Like it's, I'm not very, I'm not a funny person. So I'm going to talk about comedy <laughs> <Okay>. now. But <laughs> but some would argue probably maybe they think I am just by looking at me. But if, if you're um, chosen a genre of comedy... Like, how hard is it to to write to try and get a laugh where you won't necessarily get the result of that until after a film's produced? 
to, mm. to know whether that came off. So so why the comedy is the John the, the core genre of what you're doing on the Facebook and YouTube? Okay, so first of all, it's more fun when you're on set. It's fun when you're writing it. It's fun. So I write a lot of stuff with my partner Sean now. She's a mm-hmm. art director and production designer as well. So we almost doing everything when we're making a project. Yes. We're very heavily involved. But with comedy, it's great to write in pairs at least or groups because you're getting that bounce back. You're, oh, what if he said this? And you see the re- reaction. Oh, is that funny? Does that make sense? Yes. And it keeps you grounded too because I've got a pretty, uh, you know, out there personality and I'll maybe go on a tangent. And it's mm-hmm. good to have a writer that's more logical like Sean. She'll go, oh, the character wouldn't really do that. So there's things about that too about what makes a story funny and a character funny is knowing who that character is, which is in any story. So if you're doing a drama, you're doing a sci-fi, whatever, you need to know who that character is. Character is the most important thing in film. Yes. The character leads the story, not the other way around. And the comedy either works or it doesn't. The most interesting part of doing comedy, I think, is when you get on set and actors are trying to be funny and you go, no, don't do that. Do what's on the page. Play the character. The character being real in the situation is what's funny. You know, you don't want them playing to camera or like overstating their lines. You want them to be that person because the character is already funny or the situation they've put in makes the comedy. Yes, sure. So that's probably the most interesting and challenging part is getting the actors to basically do what they would do with any script and just play their character, mm-hmm. deliver the performance and the comedy will work. It'll be there. Sure. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting insight into the you know what you say about actors having to just play that role and let the script and the narrative and the you know the, the, everything just play out. Um, as far as character goes, though, how do you develop a character because everyone's different, mm-hmm. and you're writing someone who's fictional. Are you basing that on people you know, or are you basing it on? you know, something that you would perceive that individual would have within the story. How does that character come about? Yeah, so I like to base them on people I know sometimes. It really depends, but it, it's all about writers are usually uh, kind of judgmental people, whether it's in a mean way or not. They're always constantly observing human behavior, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. where you build a lot of your like kind of um, database from to what this person would do in this situation. Or you know, We're always quietly analyzing people. So you might be writing a character that's really like your brother, for instance, like some of my Bogan characters are a bit like one of my brothers. (laughs) And (laughs) so, you know, you've got that base there. You really know that character, but someone might be more of a stretch and more of a creation. Um, We've got a character in our new show, Riggleton, who is like a property developer, millionaire kind of guy. And he's kind of the antithesis of what an artist is. Mm -hmm. He's all about money and flashing it and wealth. And so that's kind of easy. We just say, what would we do in this situation? And he'll do the exact opposite almost. So there's different ways to approach it, but um, you want to try and build it to feel, you know, authentic. And it's interesting you you say that you want to um, contrast it almost because in the video which is up on Facebook uh, of that Riggleton, is it? Yeah, so the 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 show's called Welcome to Riggleton. Yeah, Yeah. I saw that snippet and I saw that character come in, and you literally set it up to create the character as polar opposites of everything that the mayor of that town actually represented. You just went, so the mayor was one extreme, bumbling, lack confidence, Mm -hmm. all these things. And then the sound, the doors fly open like a messiah had just arrived and everyone's seeking some, some sort of uh, 
sign or about the situation that the town's in and it's like this come guys come in and become the savior yeah. so so you can see humor in that 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 here's this guy and he's all about money and he just takes over and and then and then sells them on bs to yeah be basically honest, is, it's a sales pitch that sales they're getting pitch. but they're desperate and yeah that's what they are too is gary who's the villain in the story yes. is almost clint's exact opposite who's mm-hmm. the mayor which is the lead character yeah yeah Who are you? Me? Trev? When I look around this crowd, you know what I see? Potential. I see bakers and butchers. Mothers. Sons. What does anybody want? Family, friends, health, happiness. Everybody wants entertainment, thrills, fashion, bowling, and a 21 cinema megaplex. Everybody wants the Wriggleton Mega Mall. Yeah, so, so I can see that in hindsight because you can't you're talking about contrast how important is it when you're building character to actually have characters that um some will align with each other in the story but then there's others like the villains like people get rapport or build rapport with characters you mean as an audience as an audience yeah of course so you need likability there's a great book if anyone's starting screenwriting yeah called save the cat and it's the real basics of how to write a script and the first lessons are all about you, your character has to have a save the cat moment. Yes. So what that means is they have to have a redeemable quality, even if they're kind of a bad person, the protagonist, yes. so the lead. Yes. If they're kind of a shit person, as long as they have that one save Redeem. the cat moment, yes. a, an audience will follow them into the story. That's one of the keys. So, you know, we've got this mayor and he's kind of useless, but he's also really passionate and he loves his town and he wants to save them. Yes. Whether he has any ability or skill to do that, is where the comedy lies. Yes. But he, you see his charm, you see, like, you know, his passion and his love for his family and his town. So there's that redeemable, like, side of him, even though he's a bit ridiculous. Yeah. Hi. Hi. I don't think the people of Riggleton are ready for the news about the budget. So, I learned this great trick from watching American politics on CNN, fake news. It's called filibustering. Basically, you just talk for a very long time until no one listens anymore. Item 33, should we change the town's Wi-Fi password? Clint, that's enough, okay? We want to know about the town budget. It's interesting, um, because you bring these things up and they're things that we don't think about is, Production is designed, so the stuff that you're doing is designed that no one sees it. So mm-hmm. when an audience watches a show, it's meant to be seamless. They don't need to know where the lighting was, the microphones, the video, who wrote the script and what that that was. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the process and production behind it, um, it, it, it stands out that when you think about other programs and what they actually do, that save the cat moment, 
for me, one of my favourite characters I've ever seen on TV, and you almost feel sorry for him, but it's because he's so human, is Lewis Lid of Suits. He's a, okay. he's a, I've he's never a seen this show, but everyone always tells me to watch it. So, so <laughs> that individual, he he just he he's almost a villain within within the organisation to the extent that he just keeps stuffing up and hurting all the people around him with the stupid decisions he makes. But he he always recognises his fail, failings, and then he has a good heart, and he always comes good in the end with those save the cat moments. At times he's most needed, he comes good, mm-hmm. and I and I like the character because he's more believable than any other character in the actual in the actual yeah. show because because he is so human and he fails so much, and we're all so flawed, and we need to face that, and uh, you, that's what you lose in a lot of these ultra bubblegum blockbuster Hollywood films is. The, the hero is just a hero. There's nothing to them. You don't know who they are. You're just mm. following Iron Man flying around the sky. You know, what? who is he? Yeah, exactly. So that's what I think those big films lose a lot. So what other processes are involved in coming up with a, a, a production? Like, you invest a lot in a production. Do you ever find mid-story or mid-production that you've actually... You think you're getting it wrong, or is there because there's so much planning involved? Do you have a, a moment mm-hmm. where you say where you're that invested that it's hard to to change direction or pull out, or, or what do you do in those moments where you might not be things aren't going as well as yeah, planned? Okay, so that always happens. There's kind of a rule of a film set that you know something has to go wrong almost every day, otherwise it wouldn't be a film set. Yes. So you have those constant like minor challenges to face. I think trying to prevent story-wise problems, what I do in pre-production is we'll cast the characters early and we'll do what's called a table read. Yes. So we'll have a quite uh, well-worked draft that's almost the shooting draft. We'll get all the actors in. So in Riggleton, there's 15 characters. We've got them around this giant round table and we've ran, you know, the entire script. And they're, you know, they're kind of acting, but they're just sitting there reading the lines, but they're doing them in character. Yes. And you're watching them interact and you're seeing, okay, this is working. Oh, this character talking to that character works well. And all of that helped us inform. We've written the whole series. Yes. Uh, we've only shot the pilot, but that, those process of like working with the actors from the early stage really helps you inform like, oh, the potential of this relationship or that storyline. And it affected how we wrote the series by doing that really early on. Sure. We had the one script. On the day, if you know, adjusting, sometimes you're watching a thing and it's just not working. Sometimes you have to go back to the drawing board and literally go, okay, let's just like have a break. And like you sit there and look at the script, talk to the actors, oh, you know, what could we change? And it can be that where you just pull back and change the entire scene sometimes. Yeah. But that's good. If you're citing it, then it means you know what you're doing and you're trying to solve the problem actively instead of, as you say, someone could sit back and just watch the scene go badly and then they get to the editing room and then they basically have a choice to have a bad scene or cut the scene which is not what you want yeah no and i agree with that because i know just how much is invested in a small amount of production from my point of view that that you often only get one take with what i'm doing but at the same time if you get to the end of a production and realize that certain things weren't working or that it you know didn't look good how do you how do you monitor that on set like is it your eyes? Are there other eyes? Are you looking through different cameras? Like, what's your role when you're standing back and doing your directing? Yeah, so when you direct, you want to be talking and being really engaged in the scene, walking with the actors. But then during the take, you'll watch at a monitor. So we call it split, is what it's called. You're just watching at a video village, is another name for it. 
and trying to watch what it would look like on screen because you got to think about what it looks like on screen not yes. not look off at what they're doing because it's yes. not going to look like that it's not a player you know so you got to look at it on screen how does it feel how does it look so that's your job while the takes are rolling and is there someone else there with you doing that as well or is it more than one set of eyes oh yeah definitely so the bigger the set the better uh you'll have a job called continuity have you heard of that before no so what they do is make sure everything's going to make sense so they'll know the script inside and out and what the character's actions are so just say someone takes off their hat and then you shoot the next scene and their hat's on yeah that's so distracting you've seen things where they've left it in in big films yeah things like that that's the simplest version of that but continuity what they also do is they watch uh, the flow of the scene and they think about how you would edit it and yes. if it's going to work in the editing process so they really know the script and they know about editing as well sure. so they'll come up to me look you really need this shot because when he says I'll grab my hat and this person says let's go you don't have anything to cut to that's going to make sense because yeah. da 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 and there's all these film rules yeah, sure. that are too elaborate to explain that's about right. you know when it'll make you as an audience member go oh that was weird, but I don't know why. Just yes. the way you'll cut from one thing to the other. Yes, sure. There's all these unwritten rules. So uh, it's interesting. I don't. I've not ter- heard the heard the term continuity. Mm-hmm. However, I have experienced that in my own studio, where okay. someone had a had a loo break come back, and we re-entered the thing, and you'll notice the wire there on the yeah, on yeah, the totally side. <laughs> Put it on the other side, and it's coming down. He couldn't. I could see him battling with the, the <laughs> thing, and we're probably about five minutes back into the interview, and and I had and I had to stop and say, hey maybe if you put your headphones around the other way <laughs> but I, I figured later like that would be clearly someone might not notice the difference but they mm-hmm. would notice the difference subconsciously and yeah, that something definitely. didn't seem right particularly when we'd spoken for 20 or, or something mm. minutes so so i understand now i understand it has a name mm, continuity. Yeah, so it's a whole job in sets there'll be someone who's really good at it and in like hollywood level they get paid really well because they don't miss things yeah so at that production side so you got your actors at the moment you said you're welcome to Riggleton's got 15 uh, active cast, members, cast yeah. members behind the scenes how big is the support crew that supports you in your role um, that aren't mm. on screen that aren't on camera it really depends what you're doing on what day because a lot of the stuff we're doing is volunteer basis it's mm-hmm. investment mm-hmm. in the future of their careers yes. for the crew members just like us like we're not making money off it yes we're actually spending money we're making elsewhere in the business yes to yes. make creative content so we'll have our core group that are all in the head role so say the camera person which is actually called a cinematographer mm-hmm. so they're in, in charge of the camera and what the image looks like you've got your sound recordist you've got your production designer which is sean my partner uh, you might have a costume person that's so that everyone has their one job, but like we have this core crew that we work on everything together as a little collaborative unit, yes. and then we'll get our like contacts elsewhere to fill those secondary roles. So with the camera, you have two assistants, so that could be someone on one day, and then then they can't be available the next day. It's a different person. Yes, you've got to be really flexible with that. So the crew we've used overall is probably like about twenty-five people. Yes, but there might only be twelve of them on the set per day yeah. through the five six-day shoot. Yeah. Also, uh, talking about the people involved, your and the fact that they're volunteering at the moment with some of those. So you obviously your commercial works covering the costs hey, of those. Of course, yeah. yeah. So you you are making a living doing what mm-hmm. you're doing. Yeah. And but these other side projects are are 
where you want to be more mm-hmm. or less. You've got to show work, works that demonstrate your ability outside of the commercial environment. Mm-hmm. Um, what's one of your end games? I, I know you said you've pitched some stories to some of the local TV channels. Are you, is that something that you're trying to, to do is come up with some uh, content that they say, yeah, we'll back you for this story? Yeah, that would be amazing. It's really hard, obviously. Um, yes. Even the political landscape affects that. So whenever the Liberal Party get in, there's less funding for, say, the ABC. And the ABC and the SBS are two of the only places that will really fund Australian content mm-hmm. that's, you know, about Australian stories. It's not internationally viable. Yes. So you've basically got those two options to approach. Uh, with a project in 2018 summer school, we talked to both of them. We talked to the local funding body, Screen Queensland, and we, you know, kind of workshopped the idea with them. It didn't end up eventuating to any funding, and we're hoping to go one better this time with sure. um, Welcome to Riggleton. Well, we've got a... Uh... Okay. <laughs> Classic. I nearly shit myself. All right, double A's it is. Yeah, double A's. Oh, and uh, Joe, mate. Jesus Christ, <laughs> you did shit yourself. Cop that. <laughs> Hey man, I'm Rick. Just wanted to formally introduce myself. Uh, Joe, uh, maintenance. Um, if you ever need anything, just come and ask myself or my parentis, Leroy. Uh, did you, uh... Oh, geez, that is nasty, bro. Hey. G'day, Leroy. Rick, P. Hmm. Stinks in here, doesn't it? Yeah. And yeah, you've got those uh, streaming bodies and stuff, but they're very hard to get a foot in the door with them unless you're really established. Yes. Uh, Netflix, for instance, makes hardly any Australian content. And I think, you know, I'm pushing and a lot of uh, screen industry people are saying that there should be quotas where they have to make a certain level of local content. Yeah, sure. And that there should be like laws about that in every country in the world because yes. they do really come and take over the but don't really give anything back to the local industry. Yeah, I know that was a requirement. Like I'd studied journalism and it was actually a requirement on on TV at the time for licensing mm-hmm. that they have to show a certain amount of Australian content. I can't remember what it was. I think it was 20% back mm. in the 90s. It yeah, was so free-to-air TV. I don't yeah, know if it still to... has that rule. I know kids' content, definitely there's a quota. Yes. That you ha- every channel has to play enough kids' content you know because it's good for education the way the way that the channels tended to get around the requirement was to just produce game shows because they were Mm. cheap 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 to produce absolutely so so people who may not know why there's so many game shows it's deemed australian (laughs) content yeah so so it meets the quota and the criteria Mm. news i believe also did Mm. so you know if you can produce a fair few bulletins that's deemed australian content now they do yeah terrible reality shows like the bachelor and that'll count as well because they're making the australian version yes yeah talk about some of the projects that you've been on one of the things i've observed with the you're doing some skits and Mm -hmm. and they're just short um showing you know again abilities and and Mm -hmm. things like that so i noticed in the welcome to riggleton and the summer school that you've got a crossover with one of your main characters there that he seems to be appearing in some of your other work and you've kept him in character so what's the approach and why have you done that with with um, one of those characters yeah so we're talking about jake doke who's a friend of mine and just a hilarious person Mm -hmm. you know those people you meet and they're just 
kind of magnetic. They're likable. Everyone wants to be their mate. And yeah. they just give off this positive energy. Yes. He's just that kind of guy. Really Aussie, really like a larrikin. And um, he plays a really... It's actually a technically a different character, but a really similar character in Summer School. And yes. Welcome to Wriggleton, where he's um, a maintenance guy in one and he's a mechanic in the other. So it almost okay. looks like the same costume and everything. But Jake is not a trained actor. He's just one of those people in your life that are just hilarious. And he just got into acting while we're at film school, kind of doing bits and pieces. And he's really growing. And I love working with him because he's also great at improv. So he's probably one of the people who get the most free reign off yes. to go off tangent off my script. Yeah. Uh, which I'm usually pretty precious about. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you talk about improv. Um, mm-hmm. I think there was a one of the Jim Carrey movies where at the end they show some bloopers and one of the actors was in, he was in a courtroom and he shouts out, overacting in, to the judge. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that for me is he was given a lot of free reign with improv, as, as was uh, Robin Williams. They said mm-hmm. that those guys, they get to a level where they create stuff that wasn't written in the script that sometimes is absolutely priceless. Uh, so this individual has that for you. It yeah. comes down to... He's playing closer to real life, which always helps as well, like closer sure. to who he is. Yeah. So, so you're writing him into the script as himself? Similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah similar. Similar kind. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so Exaggerated version. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so well, that's important um, from an acting point of view. I guess it demonstrates mm. why people do actually write for actors. Sometimes they write with certain actors in mind. Some mm-hmm. scripts aren't written like that, but some scripts are actually, I believe, I'm not in the industry, are pitched to actors before they're written because they have an idea of a character and they say, would you be prepared to play this character? And they throw a script at them for them to yeah, look at. Yeah, if they have relationships from other films and stuff as well, they'll write a thing and be writing it and being saying, blah, blah. Uh, you know, Adam Sandler, this I've, I'm writing this for you, basically. Yes. And then they'll go and pitch it together. With that star power, you'll get the script up a lot easier too if you have those connections. Sure. What do you see as the hurdles of the Australian industry uh, Just as, as, that you found moving forward? Obviously, every industry has hurdles, and this is a tough one. Mm-hmm. But uh, not to... Obviously, you don't want to go into political stuff that could shoot you in the foot. <laughs> but, but, but what are some of the things as a up-and-coming uh, you know, director and writer that you encounter that you know other people would probably say, oh, am I doing this? For me, it's, it's really hard to get that like step up when you're coming in. No one knows who you are. And all you can do to prove yourself is keep creating content. Yes. And it costs us money and yes. so much time and effort every time to keep producing content and, you know, to just gradually build our kind of repertoire. And it's it's really the only way you can do it. So I don't, there's not really a, a fair and equitable way you can give everyone coming up a chance. So you've, there's not really any... I don't really have the solution. Yeah. But it, it's just a long road. It's just like um, similar industries like stand-up comedy. They say you're not good at that for 10 years. Yeah. So it, maybe it's the same with film. Maybe that's just the facts. Like you've got to go through, you've got to do your 10,000 hours. Yeah. Whatever so it is. That 10,000 hours <laughs> rule to become a expert, uh, I believe there's a book written around yeah. that. I think it's worked out that you would have to apply your trade uh, or, or whatever you're working on for three hours a day for nine years or something mm-hmm. to actually be deemed an expert in that field. That's sort of the 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 maths behind it okay uh and that doesn't and, sound that bad i think i do about 14 hours a day every day yeah <laughs> yeah so so there would be some who would fast track that uh mm. and i think it's more so studies around musicians where you get to a degree of like competent competency that's mm. just 
that's just secondary, I guess. Mm. It, it becomes part of who you instinctual. are. Instinctual. Yeah, yeah. And, and particularly sports athletes is, is one area that that, that mm. sort of training, 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 and then, then the result can be seen. And uh, it, it's also, we off camera we're talking about a book, you know, 10 Years to Overnight Success, and, and that for most people who come on the scene that look to have a degree of success... They've been doing it for ten years. They just haven't been noticed or picked mm. up or or whatever. And and like yourself, you started when you were thirteen picking up a camera. So you yeah. could almost start by saying, "Well, that's where it started," mm. as well. And and the thing is, is in your industry, as with most industries, you can have that fixed mindset where you get to a point where you just think you know everything. But I th I would think in your industry, like a lot of industries as well, that there's so much to know and learn that there's always something to be learning with what mm, you're doing. Definitely. And you learn stuff that's not in your direct line of sight. So departmentally, I'll learn a lot of things every set from other experts, from lighting and camera and stuff, because yes. I'm not a master of any of the other technical trades. Sure. But I'm really interested in learning in general. So I'll be like, oh, why do you guys do this thing when we have five minutes break or whatever? Yeah, yeah. And then they'll teach me some weird fact about, you know, how sound waves work or whatever. Yeah. And I just love that stuff, like you picking up little bits and pieces on the way. And as a director, every time you direct a scene, you're learning. And that's the only time you're really, you know, applying that skill properly. And yeah. that's why we make so much content. So I can do my skill, you know, can sure. complete it. So everyone's working together to, to actually upskill the whole time you're producing those things. You're, it's all mm. driven uh, about a, a learning process because yeah, you're investing pushing in... pushing the ball forward. Uh, those little sketches we do, they're all, you know, we try and shoot them in half a day with our best crew. Yes. We're all working together to just make the best thing we can in a short, tight time. Yeah, it's all volunteer again. And every time we feel like we're growing, we're becoming a better, more efficient team as well. Yes. So I think there's, uh, you know, the proposition value of that, like in 10 years time you'll see that all that hard work pays off and yeah. we, we're getting you know those little bits of encouragement you get into this film festival you win this award you get this grant and it just spurs you on and you just keep pushing and slowly you know trying to build that snowball to roll downhill you attended a film festival recently actually we had scheduled our interview for several weeks ago Oh yes, yeah, and you 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 message so you message me yeah you you <laughs> like you're like oh can we do this at a later date um, I'm preparing to go where do you go out west somewhere or something it's yeah. like oh yeah so this was Winton so yeah, we Winton. we yeah. were just about to go and we had so much to do sorry yeah that's my fault so it's uh, the Outback Film Festival so it's yes. the middle of nowhere Winton which is two hours out of Longreach mm -hmm. which is if people don't know that's where Qantas started okay it's a pretty interesting part of the desert. Yes. Uh, edge of Queensland and it's a great film festival they have it out under the stars you sit in a deck chair and you're watching you know top level Australian films and international films and were you week. presenting there did you have content at that film festival or were you just no we were actually doing pre-production stuff so we'd, we were involved in a writer's retreat okay. so a bunch of uh, you know emerging writing talent was selected to go in a group and all have their idea and workshop it together so we'd talk about our idea everyone would give us feedback and okay. ideas and we'd go around the table and then at the end of the week we all pitched our ideas so pitching is a really important part of selling you know an idea before production yes. getting people involved or getting funding in some cases so who you pitch to when you pitch like who are, are you I imagine there's pitches all the way along you, you're mm. pitching to actors to yeah be you're pitching to the best actor you can get you know to yeah. work for free you're pitching to the camera person that's 
look, I've got a day job and I owe this money and I've got this bill. And you're like, no, but listen how good this idea is. You'll want to do it for free. So it's kind of a constant struggle. And you're refining that pitch. And most importantly, you want to get to a stage where you're pitching to a network or something like we did last year with Summer School uh, to SBS. And when you go and pitch on something like that, who's pitching with you? So it depends who created it. With Summer School, I wrote the whole thing myself. So I was leading it and I brought two, two actors to give their kind of like mindset of yes. who their characters were that were important to the story. Um, and then now me and Sean have been co-writing everything for the last kind of 18 months. So now we'll be going together and pitching together. So how much writing would you say you do? You said you're working 14 hour days, some days. Like, like obviously the commercial work puts bread and um, milk on the table, I'll say. Just, yeah. Just. <laughs> it's one of that, but here's the thing with passion. It's, I, I spoke with someone who... Their family has spent, you know, 70 years collecting VWs. Hmm. And that's one of the people that have been on the program. And they spent quarter of a million dollars putting a Porsche motor into a bus um, to make it the second fastest in the world. And uh, and, <laughs> and my hot. friend's like, like, wouldn't that be nice to have that sort of money in production? Yeah, but yeah. but um, like, like the, the thing there is, is I, the individual's like, whoa, that's a lot of money. So, well, that's what people with a passion do. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you, it's, it's, it's either find a way or sacrifice to be able to fulfill the passion. Do you feel that your passion is a calling? Like you did it since you were 13 playing around, mm-hmm. you've enjoyed it. Do you actually feel there's a calling to do it? De- definitely. Um, it's more like an obsession, you know, like a, a drug addict. Mm-hmm. You can't stop doing it. And every time you'll get to the end of a shoot and you're so exhausted because you don't sleep enough and you work long days. And you're always just thinking and stressing and trying to make sure the next thing goes all right. That you go, oh, like you feel like I'll never want to do this again. Yeah. And you'll have like a day off and then the next day you're like, okay, what are we doing next? next and you yeah. clap your hands together. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I get a little bit like that with uh, the basketball stuff I do where I'm, I, I schedule breaks for everyone. Mm-hmm. And because there's, they're all, like because of the age group I work with, um, they're all in all these other programs. And it gets to the same point where you literally you give yourself the break but but then you one or two days in and you mm. you what am i going to do I can't sit still. look at yeah you're looking at you're looking mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons this has come about actually is because we're in break right now so thus the interviews mm-hmm. so it gave me an opportunity to realize i have time to actually work on on this as a project so i fully get the concept of feeling a little bit exhausted but one or two days is enough to, yeah. to to get you going. Well, what's next? So you said you're always writing. Are you allowed to divulge on some of the things that you ideas that you've had, or is that something that you guys keep to your chest too because you don't want to give other writers ideas? No, the, we don't really think like that. That is a weird thinking of like intellectual property or IP they call it. Um, but I feel like as much as you can have this one great idea, an idea is an idea and it's the execution that matters. Yes. So someone could say, I've got this great idea, but they might not know how to write the script. Exactly. You know, they might not have the skill. Yeah. So they might so, hear you pitch something like and say, yeah, they, they might hear you pitch it and say, uh, oh, that's a great story. Mm-hmm. But really the story is in your head still. It hasn't been. And then, yeah. then well, if you're a two minute pitch, you good luck it. writing the 90 page feature script. Uh, so at the moment in development, uh, we have a, feature film which will be our first yes so we're really excited about that um we're working with another company called continuance pitches yes and we've just started like the ball rolling i had a meeting yesterday about it so we're really excited we're not sure when it's shooting and like how long 
bleed up. We don't know if we want to shoot like um, what we call a proof of concept. So we might shoot like a scene from it or okay. a short film version of it first yes. to basically show what it can be. Yes. Is or this something you've written? To it. Yeah. So I wrote this over the last kind of, um, I must have finished it a few months ago. So it took about a year to write it. Yeah. So, so while you're doing all this other stuff, you're actually writing yeah so this the is the long, longest form thing i've done so it took the most work how many pages is is that script so it's 88 so it's like a 90 minute movie yes it's it's like a, a pg family comedy so okay. it's for all ages so i didn't want to make it too long you know kids with their attention yes, span yes. it's like good to get in and out of a story yeah. so i always planned it like that okay. and um yeah i've been working on that while we're doing all the other projects is there anything any advice you'd want to give any you know, people that might be going into the film industry here in Australia uh, that you think would be of value to them going in? Things yeah, that... okay, I'll try and summate it. It's a bit tricky. Yes. I would say uh, to be patient, uh, work hard, you know, not expect things to be handed to you and learn. Uh, the film industry is one of the kind of ancient industries as far as hierarchy, it still exists. You know, the director is like the dictator of the country still, you got to listen. Yeah. So, you know, really follow that hierarchy wherever you are and whatever role you're doing because you'll really learn from that process. And that's the only way the film can ever get made and exist. So following that on set's really important. And if you're a writer, just write. Just keep writing. Get feedback. You know, don't be scared of someone telling you it's terrible because yeah. that's how you get better. Um, greatest uh, quote about writing, Ernest Hemingway, the first draft of anything is shit. And it's just like, that's the most accurate thing. If you're a creative person, you know, with art or writing, whatever, just know that. And it's a really gradual process. You know, you'll constantly slowly improve and that piece of work will slowly improve with mm. time and effort. Uh, artist that I've interviewed actually talks to that process and says how his art is full of failures. You don't see it because you don't see the failures in the end result. Mm -hmm. But he just said it's just hours upon hours upon hours of failure Yeah. to achieve that end result. So I feel like that's what life is. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what art is. It reflects life. Yeah. yeah. So, so Ernest Hemingway hit the nail on the head. Yeah. When you are in production, part of the process too is to make it look seamless for the audience. Do you want to speak to some of the techniques and the things that you actually might do to to ensure that that you talked about continuity earlier mm. that's obviously one key thing but how much thought goes into you know light lighting audio and location yeah so it's obviously all hampered by budgetary constraints if you have any you know any means then you can do it all in a set and build everything from scratch control every element we don't so Choosing a location is really important. You know, you want it to be aiding the story and giving you the right feel. But you also have got to think about sound, for instance. You don't want a great location beside the highway because all you're going to hear is trucks going past. You know, I've been in some terrible ones when this, the sound guy will be like, oh, God, how am I going to make this work in the, the post or the editing yeah. and things like that. Um, light... Sound sound is one of the hardest things to oh. work with. It, it's Video, you could probably get away with some more chops. so yeah yeah because you've got multiple camera angles there's also something about the human brain we're so used to hearing things the right way because what you do in life is you're hearing things constantly without focusing on them you're yes. not thinking of the sound so you know how everything should sound and then you have the film tropes of like you know when a door opens it creaks you know yeah, yeah. all those silly things that you've been taught as well and so when something's wrong in a film sound wise 
your ears notice, they tell your brain, and you're like, I hate this straight away. They say that filmmaking is 50% sound. Like, you know, if something's wrong with the sound, people lose interest in focusing the story. So I've got a friend who works uh, and has done work with me who is in media, and one of the things he said um, to me is that most people, you'll get away with, like, shit video Mm -hmm. on a YouTube channel. And when I was coming to do this he basically indicated that the sound has to be good because if it doesn't sound right, people aren't going to be able to listen long enough. It's more frustrating. Yeah, it's grating. You go, oh, I just can't. So, so this. things like reverb um, mm-hmm. in a room like this, I've I've modified the room and, and you probably saw when you came in what I'm doing for soundproofing within this uh, studio. But I'm M near a highway, so your reference to the highway <laughs> yeah. earlier. And as as you're speaking to it, they may not hear it because I'm, I'm monitoring <laughs> the levels, but we had a vehicle just go past when you, you were speaking trucks, to it. Yeah. yeah. So interestingly, I'm aware of the equipment in, in the studio, so I can appreciate some of what you're saying and how it it tricky it can be. Mm. But audio, lighting, so you you're, it's almost like an orchestra. Mm. You're, yeah, or, you as a director, that. you're orchestrating all these different technical Mm. sides of things to make it look as natural and seamless as possible. So that's where having good technical minds comes in. And I guess as a director, you, you would want, like you said, you're talking to those technical people about things that interest you. Mm -hmm. And I guess as a director, you need to have an understanding or interest around lighting and sound and things like that too. So that, if you're trying to get a particular type of outcome through those, through those senses, mm-hmm. then then I guess understanding lighting, understanding sound becomes you know pretty important. So, what um, what other areas of production do you feel you need as a director to, to have an understanding of or your head around? Yeah, I I think the more you can learn, and that's what I'm constantly interested in, you know, adding skills and adding knowledge you'll just become better about any part of it um as you said lighting sounds really important to the kind of technical aspects to convey the emotion you want the other thing that's really undervalued by most people is production design so when you walk into a scene a shop a house what's in the environment you know everything in there is production design so the chair the character sitting on is really important to say something about who they are if they even like their action, if are they leaning on the counter? Are yes. they, you know, are they standing looking out the window? And what does that mean? And what's the environment? What are the curtains? What kind of lights coming through? You know, all those things um, are really, really important to telling the story. We'll use a lot of that technique of like costume and production design to tell you something about a character really quickly in Riggleton because we've got those fifteen characters. You've got one scene of each of them basically in the pilot to set them up for the series. Yes. And we so we heavily invested time in like what their, um, you know, costume would be, what kind of environment we find them in that to give us an idea of who they are as a person. Yes. The other things go into really detail is like color palettes. So you'll be like, what kind of colors would they wear and why? And what does that reflect? Like you've got the classic, um, our hero, Clint, who's the bumbling mayor. He has the white hat. Yes. Our villain comes in in the black, all black outfit, like a classic Western trope. So we yeah. like to play with that uh, kind of, you know, like classic trope because we have like a country story. Yes. We almost made them like country, uh, like Western cowboy rivals. Yes. And that kind of plays out throughout the series. They actually have a, a standoff in the street at high noon later on in the series. Okay. That'll be interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, well, that's pretty good. Look, I'll finish up 
our little chat there. It's been great having you here, um, Joel Stephen Fleming of 13th Street Films, to share your journey and your passion for filmmaking and directing and writing. I really uh, appreciate the time. If anyone wants to see the work that 13th Street Films are doing, um, I'll put the links to all their projects in the description below of this video. But I really appreciate that you've given your time to to share with us some of the behind the scenes workings of a of a, a production company. Thank you. Thanks for your time, buddy. No worries, mate. Cheers. Thanks for taking time to watch this video. If you enjoyed what you saw, please give it a thumbs up. If you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you smash that subscribe button and also hit the bell button to get notified when new interviews are uploaded. Once again, thanks for joining us and hopefully we'll see you again sometime. Catch you later.